Welcome to The Legal Tea, the podcast where we interview lawyers brewing beyond corporate law. Each week you'll hear about their practice area, the work they do, and the roads they've taken to get there. I'm your host, Max Herberg. quick word from our sponsor. God, that feels good to say. Legal Tea now has a sponsor. You see, the folks at SOAS Law Society have been enjoying our legal brew so much these past couple weeks, they've decided to sponsor our podcast. Aligned in our values of inclusivity and diversity within the legal profession, as well as promoting alternative legal careers, SOAS stands out as a law society that cares about its members and empowers them in their legal career, whatever path they choose. So if you're at least curious, be sure to check them out at soaslawsoc.com. Now, how's everybody doing this week? Honestly, I can imagine not much has changed since last week. This lockdown life, things can seem so monotonous so quickly. It's hard to find the energy and excitement to start each day. Even binge watching seems like too much of an effort. While it's important to stay safe and healthy, respecting government restrictions, it's equally important to look after your mental well-being during these trying times. So here to talk to us about that and more this week is Steve Lawler, a panel-accredited mental health law solicitor and University of Wolverhampton law graduate. In this episode, we discuss about life working in mental health law, particularly the importance of being a people person and knowing how to tailor your approach when dealing with vulnerable clients, the multifaceted yet ultimately self-employed nature of the job, and the impact that the COVID pandemic has had not only on the way Steve represents his clients, but also on the increased workload Steve has had since the beginning of the pandemic. And now, without further ado, Sit back, relax, brew yourself a cuppa, and enjoy the show. Hi, Steve. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Great. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay. So my name is Steve Lawler and I am a panel accredited mental health law solicitor. I studied my degree at Birmingham City University and my legal practice course at Wolverhampton University and have been doing mental health law for roughly seven years now. And so what is mental health law in a nutshell? So mental health law is effectively... We as the solicitor are representing people who are detained in psychiatric hospitals and they are wanting to get out of that hospital. So essentially the proceedings of getting in or getting out of a psychiatric ward or mental health institution. Yes. So when you go into a psychiatric hospital, you normally 90% of the time go in on a section. So that could be either a section two or a section three. If it's a more restricted hospital, so in terms of medium or high secure, it's more likely a section 3741, which is what the court grants at either the magistrates or the Crown Court. And then that individual asks to be taken off section. And that's when we come involved because they have the right to ask for a mental health tribunal. And then we advocate for them in order for them to leave hospital. 
And so when you reference section two or section three, is this in reference to the Mental Health Law Act or is this section specific terminology in the mental health law practice? Um, this is just related to the Mental Health Law Act. And so how does mental health law, the regulatory framework work? So normally what happens is you will be placed on a section if you're deemed to present a risk to either yourself and all other people. And then you're under a section and then each section lasts for a certain period of time. So if you're on a section two, it lasts up to 28 days. If you're on a section three, it initially lasts up to six months. It can be renewed by the doctor for a further six months and then it gets renewed yearly. Likewise with the section 37, likewise with the section 3741. However, the rights in when you can ask for a mental health tribunal vary from section to section. And so what got you to, you know, work into mental health law? Like what, what attracted you to, to this particular area of the law? Honestly, it was complete chance that I got involved in this area of law. I've, I've told this story to the many people. Um, basically, I never knew mental health law existed, which is quite probably 90% of law students as well. <laughs> You're not wrong there, Steve. That's definitely not covered on the on the LLB set of us. Yeah, um, I think to my knowledge, there's only one university in Newcastle that covers it on the LPC. But I don't think, and certainly Wolverhampton Uni doesn't. I know Birmingham City University didn't when I went there. So I knew nothing about this area of law. I was at a law firm on work experience. Uh, well, it was work experience of a sort. <laughs> Um, it was more just answering the phone for, for various queries and uh, I was introduced to the new mental health paralegal and then the following day I was told that he'd quit and basically they had no one to come in to which then they asked me if I wanted to go ahead for it which I did. I don't think I had to send off my CV. I think it was just a case of they knew me, it was a right fit at that particular time. I didn't really have an interview. The partner and head of the mental health department just came up to me and said, yep, yeah, it's nice to see someone as tall as me, shook my hand and I got the job. And didn't that, didn't that worry you, the fact that the person who had taken your job had left just a day later after you met him and they were kind of short on people? Yeah, it, it did. I understood why he left after I had a week in the job. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, basically on my first day, I was sent out to attend a meeting and I'd literally, this was the first time I'd known mental health law, knew hardly anything about it. And it was basically, you're attending this meeting, go and get some information. And he's like, right. So it's kind of a sink or swim mentality. So you're a bit of a maverick in that respect, just jumping straight into the deep end and learning on the fly. Yeah. <laughs> and so what is your day-to-day job involved? So you talked about earlier how it's about people who've been sectioned and trying to, to get them off section, but more in the, in the tasks of, of day-to-day, you know, what does a week look like in the life of, of Steve Lawler? A week in the life of me and a mental health solicitor is hectic. It's busy. Uh, some weeks you can probably have about six tribunals in a week, along with the other stuff that you do, which is meeting clients initially at the hospital pre-COVID. You would have a chat with them, have a conversation with them, find out who their medical team is. You would get their views on reports that are written by doctors, nurses, social workers. You would view their medical records, and then you would attend various meetings tribunal if they ask for one which 90% of them do 
hospital managers hearing or a CPA meeting, which is a care programme approach, which is when you essentially have a chat with all the professionals and you interact with the professionals to try and come to a plan in terms of working towards this patient's discharge if they're a long-term patient in hospital. So it's not the typical, stereotypical office-based role. It seems that you're moving on the fly from, from one end in terms of meeting the clients, on another end in terms of showing up to the tribunals, and on a third prong, meeting with all the different mental health professionals. Do you like that aspect of the job? Yeah. I mean, I guess you have to if you're, if you're having six tribunals a week. But um, what have you found in, in that respect, you know, as opposed to being an office-based role, say in the beginning where you're kind of picking up the phone to going left and right, you know, w- what have you found that experience to teach you? You obviously get better at managing your time, managing your diary. And in mental health law, anything can come in at any given time on any given day. So you would probably have a plan for one day and then you might have an urgent to come in and they've got a tribunal the following day. So then you'll put back what you had planned for that day and you go and sort this one out. It's about being able to manage your time, manage with on-the-spot things because anything can happen. So, for example, Monday of a new week and you've got very little in your diary and by Wednesday or even Tuesday that can completely change. And your week fills up with new people to go and see, to sign up, meetings, last minute tribunals can come in. So it's just a case of being able to manage your time effectively. So a very volatile work-life balance, you could say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of them are very high maintenance, high demanding. Yeah. And so since it's kind of, you know, it's an ad hoc case by case basis, do you feel very much your own independent lawyer almost kind of like a one man band in that way, uh, despite having been as part of a law firm working in mental health? Do you feel kind of a lot more control and autonomy in terms of the work that you do? Yeah, for sure. You just tend to manage your, your own cases. So know your own cases inside out. You tend to manage them. You, you know when they require follow ups are in control of your own work and then obviously the new work comes in from hospitals no you've been to so yeah even though you're in a larger law firm you tend to just barely isolating being a mental health lawyer because you're constantly on the go and you're managing your own you're in your own bubble and within this own bubble you were saying that some of your clients can be quite high maintenance. I can imagine that obviously working in mental health law, you know, having such a personal relationship with say a mental health patient or somebody who's trying to get off sanction must not only be very demanding, but also must have quite the emotional toll. I mean, essentially the work that you're doing has a direct impact on somebody's life. So how have you dealt with that over the years? Initially at the beginning, I struggled, but I think most people would struggle. I mean, clients can ring you at any given time. They can ring you on weekends. They can ring you at eight, nine o'clock at night. You cope with it by just setting boundaries. I mean, your work hours are nine to six. And then after six o'clock, whoever calls, you just don't answer. It goes to voicemail. It sets a boundary because they know when you'll answer and when you won't answer. In terms of weekends, you just switch off, go out and see mates, go out to the football, just 
do anything to just take your mind off it because, I mean, it is very demanding and it takes a certain type of person to do mental health law. And how has your job and mental health law as a profession been affected by COVID? I mean, before this pandemic, you were going to hospitals, meeting clients, going to tribunals, very much an in-person activity. And suddenly pandemic hits, lockdown. What does work look like for you now? Work for us, it hasn't stopped. It's just altered. So there's no visits at hospitals. You take instructions from clients over the telephone. You get their medical records emailed to you. All the tribunals are done by video link. All the hospital managers meetings and all the care program approach meetings, they're all done by video link. So yeah, the only change has been not having that face direction which in mental health law that can have an effect because you don't build a rapport with your client and it's extremely difficult to build a rapport when you're just a voice on the end of the telephone and if they're suffering with paranoid schizophrenia they're probably paranoid enough as it is let alone they're talking to a solicitor on the other end of the phone who they will probably only meet for the first time at the hearing because that's the only time that the hospitals can get the video working. So it's all telephone, which isn't ideal, but it's it's the best we've got at the minute. And so have you seen have you seen the quantity in cases rise or have you seen your caseload rise as a result of the pandemic? Yeah. You know, the pandemic and COVID as a whole has peaked up a lot of our anxieties in the public. Mm-hmm. Do you see that having an effect? Do you see yourself working more hours or working more cases or having more clients as a result of this as well? Or Yeah. The cases coming in have gone up. The caseload goes up. It's just about managing it effectively to try and keep the hours that you work extra to a minimum. But there's been a lot of new cases since COVID and it's probably only going to get worse before it gets back to a normal level of cases, so so to speak. How mental health law is financed? Is it the individual patients themselves that are paying the firm or paying yourself? Or is it all through legal aid and pro bono? How does mental health law in terms of the financial perspective work? So mental health law is funded solely by the legal aid agency. So they fund everything we do. They're essentially a fixed fee and they're in three sections, the fixed fees in terms of how much we, how much work we do on a particular file. So you're also constrained in terms of of a money perspective, in terms of the cases that you have being fixed fee X amount for each case. And you've got to equivalent that to the amount of hours that you work, the amount of work that you put in. And obviously in the context, as we were saying, of the pandemic where you have more cases, you've got to find a way to be resourceful, no? Absolutely. Um, I mean, it's... It's a very high intensity in terms of billing. So you would probably bill 20 files a month, which, I mean, if they're all level three cases, which is roughly around £744, and you're billing the majority of the 20 are level threes, you can make it pay. A lot of people think that legal aid work isn't well-funded, which in certain aspects is very true, like crime. But you can make mental health law pay. There are law firms out there that just solely do mental health and they make it pay. Interesting. And just going back onto the whole everything being done on the telephone and video link, how has it impacted your role in order to advocate for your client at tribunals? You can imagine it's a lot harder to convince a tribunal for someone to be taken off section if all they see them through is a video link or has it made it easier does a tribunal have an interest in processing as many cases as possible 
with them having gone video, they certainly have scope to process more if possible. In terms of whether or not it's easier to get someone discharged or harder, I mean, it was hard when it was face-to-face, but you tend to have the face-to-face approach. They can physically see the person and see how they're coping and interacting with it, whereas over a video link, it's more difficult. They don't tend to give the decision at the end of the hearings because they don't know how the person's going to respond over video, whereas if you're there face-to-face, you'll have a rough idea of how the patient's going to react and feel for the room. Before they did video and they were telephone, it was extremely difficult to get a judge to discharge because they're not even seeing the patient. And sometimes they wouldn't even hear from the patient. So it was extremely difficult then. With the video, it's still difficult. But I think it's a case of everyone getting more used to it. Judges are getting more used to it. Solicitors are, doctors are. Patients don't like it, to be quite honest, I I don't blame them. Because if I was in that position, I wouldn't want it over video. I would want to see someone face-to-face. But some of them are more accepting of it than others. So definitely an added stress for you as well, having to console the patient or acclimatise the patient to this new way of processing sections and tribunals, I imagine. Absolutely. And trying to manage them during a hearing, it's far more difficult to manage them over a screen than it is if you're literally sat right by them in a hearing room. It's easy to have a word in their ear rather than having to basically feel like shouting over video link to get your client to settle down and wait till the other evidence has been heard. Have you had experiences then of clients breaking out during tribunals? Is it something that you, that you have to kind of also keep aware of, of your client's uh, mental health state of being during the tribunal hearing itself? Yep. Yeah, clients can get up and just walk out of a tribunal because they've not liked what they've heard. You would have to be aware of your surroundings. Likewise, the tribunal panel would have to be aware of the surroundings. So, for instance, you don't put any liquids on the table that separates us and the tribunal panel when it was face-to-face because sometimes either the client would get up and they would either throw water over the solicitor not me, but I, I do know that a solicitor has had liquid thrown over him. You have the one issue where a patient flies over the table and tries to assault the judge. So it's about being aware of your surroundings and knowing whether or not it's wise for your client to even go into the room, bearing in mind their mental state on that particular day. It might be in their best interest not to go in because chances are they are going to kick off and that's not going to do their case any good. So it's about managing your clients before a hearing, during a hearing, after the hearing. That's crazy. I mean, it sounds, Steve, like you're a jack of all trades. On the one hand, obviously, you're the solicitor. On the other hand, you're also kind of a mental health care professional maintaining your client's mental health state of being. But also, you seem to be your own accountant having to be in charge of, of billing all the hours, making sure you're getting paid, making sure each case gets funded appropriately. How do you manage it all? Uh, a f- very good calendar. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of reminders. There are a stupid amount of reminders that you put on on a daily basis. You would put a reminder for when your bills need to be due in by. You would put reminders in when you would need to follow up clients, when you would need to follow up the DWP if you need to get a letter confirming that they're in receipt of benefits chase a doctor for a response for a letter there's a whole load of reminders that you would need to put in your calendar in order to stay on top of it all 
I can imagine your work calendar must be very colorful with all different types of events slotted in and different like color coded nature. I mean, it's a, it's basically a work of art in its own making. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, one thing I was actually curious as well is, you know, with mental health law, you were talking as well about appreciating, you know, whether somebody had paranoid schizophrenia or, or somebody had another mental health illness. In your work, do you have to have, say, a medical understanding of, of these different mental health illnesses? One, in the law, in the process of, of taking someone off section, procedurally, does it matter? And if not, does it matter in terms of the interpersonal, in terms of managing the client themselves? Yeah, I'd say to have an understanding of their mental illness is beneficial when you're trying to interact with that person. So, for example, a learning disability patient, you don't use any legal technical jargon, you just use basic plain English, simple sentences to explain things to them. With an autistic patient, you would make sure that if you say you're going to get there at one o'clock, you get there at one o'clock because they respond well to structure, routine. And then with the others, it helps in terms of paranoid schizophrenia. It helps with bipolar to know roughly the symptoms of those illness, but you would pick that up as you go along and get the experience of dealing with them. So you will know bipolar, for instance, their mood goes up and down. One minute they think you're brilliant, the next minute they want to sack you. Don't take it personally. It is what it is. That is part of the illness. With paranoid schizophrenia, sometimes you can tell when they're paranoid, they're preoccupied, they're murmuring things to themselves. Also, before you even see a client, you would nine times out of ten ask staff if it's safe to see them on your own. Do you need staff in with you? Also, down to the point whereby you would position where you sit in a room. So if anything kicks off, if you're sat right by the door, you can just get out the door. So there's a lot of things to think of in every appointment. No day is a smooth day. You always got to be 100% focused and in control of the situation. Yeah, every day is different. Every client's different. They have their own little individual arc. So every day is different, particularly if it's a new client. If it's an existing client that you've met, you've got a rough idea in how they're going to respond. You've got a rough idea of how they're going to respond to a phone call, how they're going to respond to a decision. You know how they're going to respond before you tell them what you're going to tell them. New clients, it's more okay finding out how they respond to things, how they react. That's when your senses have to be more heightened towards new clients. They still have to be high with existing, but you've you've got a rough idea in how they're going to act. So the, the power of language, you know, got to be very articulate, just like they teach us in law school. <laughs> yeah. And now more towards a, a thematic point of view. Over the past couple of years, mental health, at least from a social and cultural perspective, has taken on a lot of prominence, especially now it's quite a feature in businesses and industry and in life in general to be very aware of mental health, to have an added understanding of mental health and be very conscious of it. Do you see that reflected in terms of you know, any recent changes towards the law? As a result of this increased awareness, this increased concern socially and culturally, has the law been changed and made up to date as a result of that? Or do you think that there's a disconnect between the amount of concern socially and culturally you pay attention towards mental health and how mental health is operated in a legal sense? Yeah, so the Mental Health Act hasn't really changed significantly since 
1983. There was a change in 2007, but there weren't any significant changes then. There is due to be a change either in 2021 or 2022, which is going to alter the length of certain sections. It's going to alter the rights in which they have to apply for a mental health tribunal. It's going to alter the nearest relative aspect of things. So, for instance, currently under the Mental Health Act and in regards to nearest relative, it would either be brother, sister, husband, wife. But if this change goes through, then if your nearest relative is down as your mum and you don't want it to be your mum, you want it to be your friend, you can essentially pick who your nearest relative is rather than it be forced upon you. There's going to be a variety of changes whereby you could potentially end up having three tribunals for one patient. So you'll have one tribunal in regards to the section, whether they want to come off it or not. You could have one tribunal in regards to change of medication. And you could have one tribunal in terms of changing nervous relative from mum to friend, which understandably a lot of lawyers have looked at it and they've thought, yeah, that's not a work. I'm going to go and do some gardening and I'm just going to leave mental health because there's just going to be far too much extra work to be done. And others are thinking, right, there's going to be extra work, but what are the legal aid agents are going to do in terms of payment? Are they going to say, we expect you to do three times as much work for the same amount of money? If they do apply for all three, which when clients get to know that they can appeal a certain medication and they can appeal their nearest relative, it would not surprise me if they went for all three. Or would they say, well, right, if there are two tribunals on a file, you get this much. If there are three tribunals on a file, you get that much. So there might have to be potentially a restructuring at the legal aid agency in terms of payment. But I don't suppose that bridge will be crossed anytime soon. I suspect they will wait and see what is implemented and then take it from there in terms of if they need to alter the pay. But, you know, the cumulative effect of all these upcoming changes is then to to what? To ease the process, to give individuals who are sectioned more options. What, what are these changes for? Essentially, the changes give more options to the person who is detained under section than they currently have. That is the main purpose of them. Fantastic. And so setting aside the legal aid question, obviously, because a fixed fee structure with more work, but same pay is you know, no happy solution for any solicitor. Setting that aside, do you welcome these changes? Yeah, I think the changes will give more flexibility for the patients. They will have more opportunity to appeal certain aspects, one being medication, one being nervous relative. And particularly section two, they're looking at changing it from being 28 days in length to being 14 days in length, and they can appeal within the first seven days. So if they're being assessed, it means an assessment in theory should be done quicker. Whether or not that's practical is an argument for the psychiatrists to have. And if it is implemented, they would have to overcome that. Interesting. Now, from a personal perspective, mental health law wasn't something that you initially decided by choice in that this is always what I wanted to do, but something you happened across by chance. Having been in the field for several years, what are some of the skills that you feel are necessary to succeed in mental health law? You need to be able to get on well with people, obviously a variety of people. So you would need to have a good personality to be able to get on with medical teams, patients, mental health administrators. You would need to have a willingness to learn 
the last job I thought I would be doing would be mental health law seven years ago. There's no way you would have got me in a room and trying to advocate for a patient because it just wasn't my style. So in many ways, mental health law will change your personality as you go through learning. But the main thing is, is that you're a people person and you get on with people because you are dealing with people 95% of the time. You are talking to people, you are emailing people. As long as you're a people person, that would be the main skill that I would say you would need. Definitely not a role for introverts. No, well, I mean, you say that, I mean, seven years ago, I would probably say that I was an introvert. So I, I may be the exception to the role. When I got offered the job and I went home, I was living at home at the time. I said to my parents that I'd got a job in mental health and then I explained what it was. They were like, nah, that's just not for you at all. So, I mean, it's uh, changed me from an introvert to having a good reputation within Birmingham and the West Midlands in the role that I do in such arguably such a short space of time. If I said to people coming out of university now, I would say if you want a challenge, do mental health law, you may surprise yourself as to what you're capable of. Just talking about that, you know, say second year law student, third year law student approaching the end of their degree, how would they kind of find these opportunities to get into mental health law? And it's nowadays, you know, career affairs and everything, it's corporate law from this, corporate law from that. How does anybody really go about getting into mental health law unless, say, they were working like you were kind of at a work experience at a firm and then, you know, suddenly they said, hey, you want the mental health law job? Fantastic. You start tomorrow. There are not many jobs around Honestly, either if you wanted to get into mental health law, you could Google mental health law firms and a list would, would probably come up. The other option is you look at, if you type in Google Mental Health Lawyer Association and it will come up their website and then there would be a heading jobs. If you click on that, there'll be jobs advertised on that. You may see the odd job on LinkedIn advertised, but most of the jobs in mental health that I see advertised are more for psychiatrists, they're more for approved mental health practitioners. So if you've got a social work degree kind of a thing, you could go into being an approved mental health practitioner, for instance. It doesn't help that it's not well advertised on LLB syllabus. So for instance, when I went for my graduation ceremony in well over two years now, I've been qualified as a solicitor. And when you shake the master of the role's hand and you have a chat with him afterwards and he asks what you do, He's amazed and he says there needs to be more of them. And he's right. Trying to get a panel accredited mental health lawyer is like getting, it's like getting rocking horse poo, is getting a panel accredited mental health lawyer. They, they aren't everywhere. You only know of them if you're in within the field. But the only thing that I could say, if, if you want to get in mental health law, you either Google mental health law firms around your area or you Google mental health lawyers association and you look in the job section and you'll see jobs being advertised for paralegals on there. So very much a kind of a go-getter attitude you've got to have if you want to break into the, the mental health law profession. Yeah, if you're a paralegal and you're in a law firm, they won't want you being non-accredited for very long because when you're accredited, that's when you earn more money for that firm because you can do tribunals. But that in itself is quite a complex process. 
So mental, when you say accredited, you mean accredited by the Mental Health Law Panel or the Mental Health Lawyer Association? Yes. Yeah, so in order to do mental health tribunal, you need to go through the Law Society's accreditation process, which if you're successful, then you become accredited and you're on the Law Society's list of accredited mental health law professional. What that essentially entails is fill out an application form. You also have to observe a unrestricted tribunal, so that be a section two, section three, section thirty-seven, a restricted tribunal, thirty-seven forty-one, forty-seven forty-nine, and a other one. So more often than not, it would be a community patient that you would observe a accredited representative advocate for them at a hearing. Obviously, that's going to be quite difficult at the minute, being COVID and everything else. And then you would have to go down to London, the Law Society office, and you will do a multiple choice test. Then they will give you a scenario 45 minutes before the interview for you to read and make notes on. And then you would go into the interview and they will literally grill you on everything within that scenario to the point that they will make you doubt yourself that you've given the right answer, even though you probably have. Then they get back to you within two weeks with a A or an A. If it's EA, great, you're accredited for three years. But then every three years, you have to be re-accredited, which is probably even worse than the actual accreditation. And that's insane. I mean, all these barriers to entry, you know, between not readily advertised opportunities, the amount of stress and workload that you've got, then on top of that, the accreditation process. Yep. It can seem all kind of doom and gloom, but obviously having been in the profession as long as you have... What words of inspiration would you give to someone who's facing this adversity, who wants to work in mental health law, but obviously has all of these obstacles in front of them? Don't give up. You will get there eventually. There's no doubt about that. I mean, I got a third class degree, got that appealed, got it up to a 2-2 degree. Every job I was going for was a 2-1. Then I got this stroke of luck in, in mental health. And then it's just about getting your head down working hard and then just prove to the bosses that you want to be in that field of law by just using your brain effectively as a sponge to suck up all the knowledge and yeah it it is daunting going through accreditation doing all the research doing all the reading you have to go on a two-day course before you can apply for accreditation and that two-day course will just fill you with loads of information will probably like bamboozle you but just take a moment just read through it it's perseverance that that's the only way that i've got to where i am so much so that i'm going to be setting up my own company so it's just perseverance is what gets you to your end goal beautifully put now before i end i always like to have a fun question round of my guests and so i want you to tell me what your favorite legal film or tv show or book that you have and why Growing up during the LLB or afterwards nowadays, everyone loves suits. That's, that's obviously an easy cop-out answer, but... <laughs> On the eyes, I've never seen suits. <gasps> wow. <laughs> that, is, that, that, that is a twister. I genuinely don't know what it's like. I do quite like Devil's Advocate, mm. which has Al Pacino and Keanu Reeves in. That's a good film. I quite like The Secret Barrister's book because I've just bought the second one, which is Fake Law. I haven't started reading it yet, but... Those books give you a different insight and it's probably the most accurate insight you will get in a law book 
in in terms of how a court is, how you sum up the judge when you walk in, you can just tell by the tone of the voice what they're going to be like. That is a very good book, which is basically real life, and I understand why he remains anonymous. (laughs) I don't think many judges would uh, want him in front of them. Got to keep the anonymity in order to keep the job prospects safe. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> oh, fantastic. Well, well, thank you so much there, Steve. And, and thank you so much for your time. If anyone wants to contact you or reach out to you with any follow-up questions, can they do that? And where so? Yeah, they can contact me either on LinkedIn, just search Steve Lawler and it will come up. They can contact me by mobile, which is 07540853973 or by email, which is stephen.lawler at lawlers l-a-w-l-o-r-s lawlimited.co.uk fantastic well there you have it folks plenty plenty of choices in terms of reaching out to steve and once again steve thank you so much for attending the podcast you're very welcome thank you well that's the show folks if you enjoyed learning about mental health law then be sure to check out steve's new podcast the legal wolf where Steve discusses all things mental health with professionals within the sector. You can find the link to his podcast in our show notes. Moving on to our special thanks to our unsung heroes for the week, Claire Herberg for editing and producing the episode, Andrew Waddell for scripting the show notes and blog posts, and Matt Gedrich for the absolute banger of a theme song. If you enjoyed the episode, show us some love. Subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice, and be sure to follow us on our social media platforms at legalt.uk. Till next time.